Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If we are going to have any level of success in the Christian life, then we have to intentionally practice our faith. And the emphasis is on the word practice. If you are an elite athlete, uh, you didn't get to that place accidentally. You didn't get there overnight either. Instead, you probably spent thousands of hours practicing your sport. You've also probably spent thousands of hours doing physical training that wasn't even directly related to the sport in which you excel. If you're a pro basketball player, you didn't get there just by playing basketball. You also had to work out. Uh, you also had to run sprints. You also had to lift weights. You also had to do all of these other things. I played football a little bit back in the day, and, and that was the part that I hated. I enjoyed playing football, but when I was like running sprints in 95-degree weather on a Tuesday afternoon after school, I hated football, right? So, but, but it was necessary. Like if we were going to function well as a team, if, if I was going to be a good athlete, if other people on the team were going to be good athletes, we had to do all of this other work as well, and it was a discipline, right? It, it took effort, it took exertion, and it took consistency. Like we had to consistently do these things if we were going to be optimized for the task at hand. The Apostle Paul actually uses a, a similar metaphor for the Christian life. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, here's what he says. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? He says, so run that you may obtain the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control, self-control, self-control. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, not some things, all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so he says, I don't run aimlessly, I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. We probably don't think about this often, but we are thoroughly Western people. We are Western in the way that we think. We are American in the way that we think. We are Western in the things that we do. And yet we practice a faith, Christianity, that is thoroughly Eastern. It is not a faith that was developed in America. It's not a faith that was birthed in Europe or in the West. Christianity was birthed and developed in Jerusalem, right? The center of the Middle East. And as Christianity started to expand outward, the first significant Christian city outside of Jerusalem was even further to the east. It was Antioch. It was the place where the Apostle Paul was sent out from. As Christianity, though, has been westernized 
over the course of the last 2,000 years, one of the things that has been diminished, I think, is the importance of holistic spiritual practice. Let me explain what I mean. Following Jesus is an all-of-life endeavor. Following Jesus is not simply an intellectual endeavor, like it's not just a mental endeavor. It is a mind, body, and spirit endeavor. It's a mind, body, and spirit practice. It is holistic. It takes into account the whole of who you are. For those of us in the West, we are quick, I think, to latch onto the mental and intellectual elements of Christianity. We are quick to latch onto things like Bible study and theology and doctrine. We're also quick to latch onto the kind of outward moralistic work of Christianity, so whether that's serving the poor or seeking to love other people or worshiping. All of those things are beautiful things. They're all things that we are called to. And yet one of the things that we can leave behind is more of the experiential element of practicing our faith. That is probably one of the most Eastern elements of what we do. Spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines that actually take into account our interior life that actually call us to be introspective, that actually call us to dig deep into who we are and and what motivates us and what we want. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to zoom in on one of these practices that Jesus brings to light in our text. It is a decidedly lost thing for most American Christians, and that is fasting. We're continuing our study of the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen a lot of things thus far in the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen Jesus recontextualizing things for Jewish believers that he was speaking to, not only his own followers, but also for other people who were hearing him. Jesus is constantly saying, as we have brought to light often, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You, you, You've heard this said, but here's the real truth. Here's the actual scoop on what God wants you to do and how God wants you to live. And and what we've said is that there is an extreme element to the stuff that Jesus is talking about. There is a sense in which I could never do those things just on my own. And that's part of the point. You can't do these things on your own. Jesus is calling you to submit the whole of your life to him, to truly abandon yourself to him, to say, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. You are my only hope. I cannot earn my way into your good graces. I can't earn my way into heaven. I need you, Jesus. But then there is another side of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is also describing for us what he is like. So so when he says things like, you've heard it said to to like love those who love you and to hate your enemies, like I tell you to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is not only telling us something that we should do, he is telling us who he is, right? He's describing for us how he operated and how he lived. As we find ourselves in the second week of Lent, we find ourselves in a season that is built around fasting. Lent may not be something that you observe or practice in your regular everyday life. It's not necessarily something the Bible tells us to do. But what we have found to be true is that if the resurrection is real, 
And if the resurrection is something that the church should come together and celebrate at Easter time, it's, it's kind of weird to just suddenly wake up and go, yay, Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is alive every day, right? That's true every single day. One of the things that we desperately need, and this is something that Paul talks about a lot, we need to be reminded of who we really are, that we are broken by sin, that on our own we are hopeless, that on our own we can do nothing good. There are none who are righteous, not even one. And if we aren't reminded of that and then just kind of waltz into Easter and just waltz into the celebration of Jesus' resurrection without like some serious reflection on why that actually matters for me, then we can miss it. And then it becomes a rabbit delivering some eggs right? It becomes a meal that we have with our family, or it becomes just the thing where I need to like dress up fancy for church. And if that's all that it is, then we have missed the primary event, like the thing that is the single greatest thing in all of human history outside of just being made in the image of God. The fact that Jesus came, the only begotten Son of God, and went to the cross and died a brutal death and came back from the dead so that we could be made right before God. It is the single greatest thing that could ever happen for any of us, and yet sometimes we can just plow through Easter and miss it because we haven't reflected on the fact that we need it. We desperately need Jesus and his sacrifice. One of the things that we immediately see in our text today is that Jesus assumes that you will be fasting. He assumes that that's something that you will be doing. He says, when you fast, here's how you should do it. Yet most of us don't. Most of us don't fast. I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day, and he said, the only time I've ever fasted is when I had to have a colonoscopy. (laughs) Right? Even in a season like Lent, most people don't actually undertake a biblical fast or a true fast, and I'll explain what that is in just a minute. Most people during Lent don't don't practice true fasting. They actually practice abstinence, which is a little bit different from what the Bible actually says fasting is. They abstain from something for a certain period of time. I'm not going to drink coffee or I'm not going to eat sweets for the 40 days of Lent. And, and while abstinence can certainly have spiritual value, and there is also biblical precedent for abstaining from certain things for spiritual purposes and so that you can grow in your faith, it is, it is a different thing. And, and when Jesus talks about people who have like disfigured their faces so that their fasting can be seen by others, he's not talking about people who've just said, hey, I'm going to cut out chocolate cake for a few weeks, right? He, he's talking about people who are not eating and who want you to know that they're not eating so that you'll be impressed with them and their piety. Turn with me real quick, Matthew chapter 9. I want to show you something. Matthew chapter 9. Look at verse 14. It says, Then the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, the disciples of John came to him, Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, 
can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus basically says, my disciples aren't fasting right now because I am here with them. It's like at a wedding reception when, when you're like waiting for the bride and groom to show up, you know, and everybody's kind of going, should we eat? Should we not eat? We probably need to wait until they get, and then, and then somebody gets on the mic and announces Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, and they come into the room, and that's really when the party starts, right? It's when the dancing begins. It's when the buffet line really starts getting long, right? It's, it's the bride and the groom are here. Let's celebrate. And then once they leave, it's kind of over, right? Like, like it would be weird for all of that party stuff to kick up once the bride and groom have left. Jesus says, why, why would they fast when the Son of Man is here with them? Like when, when I'm in their midst. But he says, there is coming a day, believe me, there is coming a day when I will not be in their midst, in the flesh, in the, like the incarnation, in the way that I am right now. And believe me, they will fast then. Eventually the bride and groom will leave. The party will be over and it will no longer be a time of feasting. And guys, those are the days that we are living in now. Those are the days that we are living in now. By Jesus' standard, everybody should be fasting. Everybody should be fasting. Christian history reveals that there was a time when this was practiced way more than we practice it now. The Didache, which is um, kind of a manual for church that is from the first century. It's, it's one of the oldest uh, Christian manuscripts that exists outside of the Bible. The Didache uh, said this. It said, let your fasts not be like the hypocrites, meaning like the Pharisees, people Jesus was talking about, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but do your fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. So, so early on in the life of the church, they wanted to distinguish themselves from the people that Jesus was talking about here, but they also didn't want to lose the practice of fasting because that wasn't what Jesus was saying. Jesus wasn't saying, listen, don't be like the hypocrites who are fasting and disfiguring their faces and they're covering themselves with ashes and they're putting on sackcloth and they're doing all this stuff and they're weeping and wailing in the streets. Don't be like them. Don't fast. That's not what Jesus says. He says, when you fast, don't do it in the way that they do it. And so very, very early on in the church, leaders who were springing out of the ministry of the apostles were saying, no, we're going to continue fasting, but we're going to distinguish ourselves, and we're going to do it on Wednesdays and Fridays. Epiphanius, who was a Christian bishop in Italy in the 5th century, said this, who does not know that the fast of the fourth and sixth days of the week, Wednesday and Friday, are observed by Christians throughout the world? So within just three, four centuries after the Didache was written, here's a Christian bishop going, hey, the practice of fasting is now spreading around. Like as the gospel spreads, as the church is growing, so also is this spiritual practice. 
Fast forward even more to the 16th century, John Calvin in his famous Institutes, um, which is this huge work that he wrote, said this, let us say something about fasting because many for want of knowing its usefulness undervalue its necessity and some reject it as almost superfluous. While on the other hand, where the use of it is not well understood, it easily degenerates into superstition. So, so he's saying there, some people are thinking, this doesn't matter at all, it's unimportant, and other people are practicing it so rigidly that they've come to think that maybe it's some kind of tool for me getting what I want out of God. So I'm going to fast so that God will like kind of obey my commands as if God is some kind of magic genie. So he says, okay, we've got to dispel that stuff. He goes on to say, holy and legitimate fasting is directed to three ends. For we practice it either as a restraint on the flesh to preserve it from lasciviousness, or as a preparation for prayers and pious meditations, or as a testimony of our humiliation in the presence of God when we are desirous of confessing our guilt before Him. So I think Calvin describes many of us who don't understand the usefulness of fasting. And so as a result, we undervalue it or we throw it out completely because we don't really understand why this is something that could have value for me. So so let's do this in our remaining time. Let's talk about what the Bible actually says about fasting, and then let's try to answer the question, why should you be fasting? Why should you be practicing your faith in this way? First of all, fasting is talked about dozens of times in the Scripture. It is talked about more than baptism. So think about how much you've heard about baptism in your life versus how much you've heard about fasting in your life. Um, Fasting is not a uniquely Christian practice. In fact, most world religions have some element of fasting in their practice. A writer named Richard Foster says, in Scripture, the normal means of fasting involves abstaining from all food, solid or liquid, but not from water. So normal biblical fasting, or what I often call true fasting, is simply about not eating for a designated period of time, but still drinking water. There are also two other biblical fasts that we see. If what I just described is kind of a normal fasting, then there's another kind that's often called absolute fasting, which is where somebody not only does not eat, but they also do not drink water. And and that isn't really to be advised. Like that is not in any way a common practice in the scriptures. You can go for days and days without eating. You cannot go very long without drinking water. Uh, one of the only times we actually see that in the Scriptures um, is, is for a very short period of time, if you read the book of Esther, in the story of Queen Esther, she undertakes an absolute fast for a period of three days, which is about all anyone could ever possibly do. The only other absolute fast that we see that we know is an absolute fast in the Bible is Moses, who goes up on the Mount Sinai for 40 days. He meets with God on Mount Sinai. Every, everybody at the bottom thinks he's dead, you know, but he's up there and he doesn't eat and he doesn't drink and he is sustained somehow supernaturally by the presence of God on Mount Sinai. Jesus, as we know, also goes out into the wilderness 
He faces temptation in the wilderness. He also fasts for a period of 40 days, but it's not explicitly stated. Is he, is he fasting absolutely? Is he drinking water or is he just not eating? We're not totally clear on that. Um, but Jesus also is, is undertaking that 40-day fast, which is where this whole Lenten idea comes from. The whole, I'm going to take 40 days leading up to Easter. Um, it comes from Jesus in the wilderness. The, the second thing we see in the scriptures is corporate fasting. This is where a group of people will come together for the purpose of coming before the Lord in this way. And, and most famously, this was seen in what was called the Day of Atonement for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. It was a day of fasting that took place every year for the Jews in which they would come together, make sacrifice, and humble themselves before the Lord and fast. So, final thing I'll add about fasting is this. Uh, A theologian named Scott McKnight says this. He says, we're not totally sure how exactly the ancient Israelites and Christians did fasting. Like, the Bible does not give us a manual for this. It doesn't tell us exactly what we should do. He says, but what seems most likely is that they fasted from evening dinner until midday the next day or until dinner the next day. So it was either a 12-hour fast or a 24-hour fast. He says it's possible they fasted after breakfast until dinner that evening, but it seems more likely that the term fast described not eating from one evening meal until the next evening meal. So fasting is not eating. Got it? Um, Here's one of the things we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount thus far. God is far more concerned about what's going on in your heart and what you are pursuing than anything else. God is far more concerned about what's happening in here than what's happening externally. This is his problem with the so-called hypocrites. His problem with them is what's happening in their heart is not at all what's manifesting on the outside. So what's manifesting on the outside is all of this apparent piety, meaning they are seemingly humbling themselves before the Lord. They're seemingly incredibly religious and devoting their lives to God. And yet on the inside, what they really crave is the glory that is due to God himself. They are craving glory and admiration and respect for themselves rather than through their heart and through their actions to give God glory in all things. And so as we talk about these things, that is the most important thing we could say. It's the most important point we could make. God is seeking those who are um, looking to find different ways to men. How can I grow? How can I develop? How can I get closer to him? How can I become more like Jesus? What do I need to do to do that so that I can know him in a deeper way and be more like him? That is like the single most important thing here. But why on earth would we do it in this way? Why, wouldn't, why on earth like, would we just not eat? Like, what, what is the point of all of that? And the answer is there are at least 14, possibly more, but at least 14 biblical and historic answers to that question. And just a few examples of answers to those questions. One of the reasons why people fast is just repentance. Man, it's, I, I've become convicted of my sin. I've become aware of my guilt before a holy God. And, and this is almost like a form of grief, right? So if you've ever lost someone close to you, someone in your life has ever died, one of the things that you've experienced is that, especially if it was unexpected and sudden, is people just don't really eat for a period of time. 
It's, it's not like, hey, we've decided to fast. But there is a sense when somebody dies and it's sudden and it's traumatic, there is a sense in which it would feel wrong almost to go, hey, everybody, let's go have a steak dinner. Right? That doesn't make sense. So, so we had a, a niece, a two-year-old niece that died unexpectedly in her sleep several years ago. And, and we experienced this, that there would have been something weird about, hey, everybody, let's have a big feast. Why would we do that in that moment? That wouldn't make any sense, right? We're in grief. We're in mourning. Like, what do we want to do? Like, we want to weep and cry and, and reflect on this. And, 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 and like, it just fills your mind and your heart. And so you're not thinking, man, how can we celebrate? You're thinking, how do we, how do we grieve? And the same kind of thing should be happening when God reveals our sin to us. Like there's a beautiful thing that happens when he reveals our sin to us because it's calling us out of that. It's calling us to repentance. And, and what we find is that he is incredibly kind in that he's given his son Christ for us and that there is hope and that there is forgiveness. But there should also be a sense of mourning and grief that takes place when we recognize who we are and what he has done. And so one of the continual things that we see in Scripture is fasting as an act of repentance. That's what was happening on the Day of Atonement. We see fasting as a way to strengthen our prayers, or you could say to focus our prayers, that I'm not just going to blow through my prayers. Instead, I am going to take some intentional time to spend with the Lord and to devote myself fully to Him. And so I'm just not even going to bother with eating while I'm doing that. And, and one of the things that happens when you do that is, is your hunger reminds you of your need of Him. It reminds you that He actually is your provider and your sustainer. It actually reminds you just kind of how fragile and vulnerable you are. That if you're going to be healthy, like if you're actually going to breathe in and out during the night while you're sleeping, it's going to be because the Lord's power is at work, right? Because He is doing something. So we need Him deeply. That's why we sing the doxology. Like we want to be reminded of the fact that we can do nothing without Him and that all good things come from Him. We see people fasting to seek God's guidance. We see people fasting to seek deliverance or protection. We see people fasting to humble themselves before God. We see people fasting to overcome temptation and to battle against temptation. So I've taken the 14 or so reasons for fasting that we see in the scriptures, and I've put them into kind of like five master categories. Here they are. We see people fasting for personal spiritual transformation. Like, I, I want to grow, I want to mature, I want to take steps forward, I want to be a different person tomorrow than I was today, a different person next year than I am this year. And so one of the ways that I'm going to seek to practice my faith is I'm going to fast and I'm going to spend intentional time with the Lord. I'm going to repent of my sin, I, I'm going to seek to give myself to Him fully, I'm going to seek to overcome temptation in my life. And so I'm going to turn away from good things for a season and give myself to Him. So personal spiritual transformation. Secondly, I'm going to seek communion with God. You know, God has this characteristic. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere, all of the time. 
And yet, sometimes we're not looking for Him. He's at work in our midst, and sometimes we don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. One of the things that fasting does is it actually brings us into this place physically where I think we are more in tune to recognize God's movement around us and to actually listen to Him and hear the things that He would be saying to us. Next, people fast just as an act of worship. Like, I want to humble myself before the Lord. I I kind of want to bow before Him as a king, as my master. And so, in order to focus my mental energy and my heart energy and my time on that, I'm going to fast. We see people fasting for deliverance and protection. Uh, We see this in the story of Ezra, the prophet in the Old Testament. Ezra is going to undertake a journey. He's going back to the city of Jerusalem after, after being in exile, and he gathers the people together because the roads are dangerous, they're criminals, they could be killed, and he calls the people together that are traveling with him, and he says, let us fast before the Lord before undertaking this journey. And then finally, we see people fasting in grief or sorrow. So King David, for example, um, King David has an affair with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. She has a child. The child is sickly. The Lord has declared that the child is going to die. So what does David do? He fasts. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. And what happens? The child dies still, right? So fasting is not this silver bullet. Like It's not this magic trick where if I do this, then God's going to do what I want him to do. But when the time came for David to truly come before the Lord and prostrate himself before the Lord and seek the will of the Lord, that's what he did. So when we voluntarily choose not to eat food, we are immediately reminded of how fragile we are, how vulnerable we are, how helpless we really are. And listen, that may not strike you as a fun place to be, but that's not the point. I think the Bible would contend, though, that it's a really healthy place for you to be. It's a really healthy place to be. Paul says that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In other words, you need to be in like the right headspace if you're going to be successful at following Jesus. And I think fasting is something core that puts us in the right headspace. Headspace. It is us intentionally practicing reliance. Intentionally practicing reliance. There is nothing more un American than relying or, or not. Or, there's, let me restate this. There's nothing more un American than relying on something else or somebody else. Like one of the core principles of just American culture is self reliance. Like, it's all about me. It's all about me taking care of me. It's all about me providing for me. Many of us, that's what our parents modeled for us. We don't ask for help. We take care of ourselves. And guys, that is actually counter to the gospel. The gospel says you are incapable of taking care of yourself on your own. You're incapable of providing for yourself on your own fully, and especially in the spiritual sense. You desperately need a Savior. You desperately need a provider. So fasting reminds us of the fact that that is true. We desperately need it. Let me just end with a few tips 
And I'm, I'm no expert at fasting, but it has become something that has become a little bit more of a normal practice for me over the last few years. And so here's just a few things I've learned. I'll throw these out there to you. First of all, you need to have a plan. Um, you can't just run into this without some kind of game plan for what you're doing. Um, and, and I would advise you to start small and, and, and try to work up from there. If this is something that you feel like the Lord's calling you to do, then I would say, hey, start with a 12-hour fast. Start, start by saying, hey, I, I might eat a little bit of breakfast early, but I'm not going to eat lunch, and I'm, I'm just going to pretty much spend the day not eating until it's supper time. And then work up to the 24-hour fast. Hey, I'm going to eat dinner the night before, but then obviously I'm going to fast all night while I'm sleeping. I'm not going to eat breakfast. I'm not going to eat lunch. I'm going to eat dinner the next day. That's kind of the traditional Jewish fast. Um, it could be maybe that after you've done those things that you feel like there would be benefit in even going two days or three days in a normal fast. That's, that's a totally um, common thing that people do. And I've never done a three-day fast. Um, I've done a little bit more than 24 hours, but not much. Um, but there are many people out there that do more than that. So have a plan. Have, have, just have some kind of idea of what you're going for, and don't bite off more than you can chew. And, and then next, fill the spaces. Fill the spaces that, where you would be eating. Fill it with prayer. There, there, is, there is some kind of a direct connection between fasting and prayer, Whenever we see this in the scriptures, it's, it's never really just fasting for the sake of fasting. It's always fasting so that I can spend more time with my, my Father in heaven. It's always so that I can grow closer to him in some way. And prayer is a key factor there. Another thing I would say is don't watch TV because when you're fasting, you will become more aware than ever how many food commercials there are. Like it is incredible, especially if you're watching TV around mealtimes. Just, just try this out. Like it, it is, it is uh, like unconscious. You don't even notice it. There are so many food commercials, especially around those times of the day. And then finally, don't stress out if you accidentally break your fast. Like, don't stress out if you just can't do it. Um, again, this is a practice. This is something that the more we do it, the better we will get at it, right? So um, you don't go to the gym and just like crank out three hours of working out if you've never worked out before, right? So we start small and we work up. And, and one of the things that I would encourage you guys to do over the 40 days of Lent is to look at those traditional days, Wednesday and Friday, and look at those as potential days where you could possibly practice some of this. Maybe pick one. So, so what I've done for Lent this year is I've just picked Wednesday. And, and I've said, hey, on Wednesday, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek to fast each Wednesday throughout Lent. And so I'd encourage you guys, maybe, maybe pick one of those days and just, just give this a try. Just say, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to eat lunch today, and instead I'm going to devote myself to prayer during lunch. Right? Or I'm going to read Scripture, I'm going to meditate on Scripture, I'm going to try to spend some time with the Lord. That would be my encouragement to you guys. So, it's a lot of info this morning, um, but let's take it to Him in prayer. Let's ask for Him to give us His guidance and His wisdom and to show us the things that He would have us do as we seek to follow Him in a deeper way and grow in Christ and be the men and women that He has called us to be. Let's pray. Our God, we give You praise and honor and glory. We thank You for the truth of Your Word. Um, we thank you for who Christ is and what he has done. Um, the reality is we live in a broken world, and that is the whole reason that you sent Jesus in the first place. Our world is filled with sin, and Father, our flesh, 
um, the desires of this world, uh, the lust of our eyes. God, all of these things want to divert our attention away from you. And Father, we see fasting as something that actually centers us, that actually brings us to this place where we can more clearly devote ourselves to you and your purposes and your will, Father. And I pray, God, for those of us who have never done this, God, that you would encourage our hearts, um, that you would help show us that um, you are the source of all good things. And if it takes us saying no to some good things for a brief period of time so that we might become more aware of how good you are and how you do provide for us and how you do take care of us, God, then I pray that you would encourage our hearts to do those things. Grow us up into Christ um, so that we might go out and take your gospel and live your gospel in the world around us, Father. Um, We thank you for the truth of your word, and it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.